to think through the very theme of this whole series this fall, the fruit of the Spirit. We're finally getting to this theme now five weeks in because there is so much background about the Holy Spirit and His, His, His work in the life of a believer um, that is necessary to understanding rightly the fruit of the Spirit being displayed in the lives of, in our lives. How so? Well, what have we already considered so far this semester? Week one, we looked at a passage in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul tells believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then, immediately, and as soon as that's out of his mouth, he says, so that we don't, he says what he says next, so that we don't think that the Christian life is just about trying to make ourselves better. That's not Christianity. That's just moralism. It is instead working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the reason for the first thing. You do this because God's doing that. That passage set the foundation for us to remember that the Christian life, again, is, is, is not just us knowing that we're sinners and that we're just trying to do better. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we've sinned against God. We've lived our whole lives in rebellion to Him. And the Bible says all in one chapter. It's quoting a lot of different ones, but there's none righteous, not one. Nobody is righteous. Nobody does good. Nobody seeks after God. All have turned aside. All have gone their own way. It's all in Romans chapter 3. Paul pulled him from a lot of different places. Gospel is that in that state, God came in Jesus Christ to live perfectly an obedient life to God that we owe to God. And he died a cursed death on the cross the death that we deserve to die, and he rose again from the dead on the third day, showing that salvation was complete for anybody and everybody who would ever repent and believe. But the problem is ourselves. The problem is us. The problem is, left to ourselves, we don't care. And we don't come. If God leaves us as we are, and the wages... What is owed to us for that is death, which is, that's Romans 6.23, is death, which means eternal separation from God for all eternity when we die, but also blind, unfeeling, and uncaring unbelief while we live. Which we will absolutely continue in unless the Lord comes to us, since none of us will ever go to Him. And Paul told us that first week in Philippians 2 that God graciously does that. He graciously wills and works in us for His good pleasure. If anyone, if anyone, remember, nobody does good. No one seeks after God. Romans 3.10 If anyone turns to Jesus in repentance and faith, God made the first move. Paul had already told them that in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
That brought us to week two, where we learned that it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that the Lord began that work in you. The Holy Spirit is a person, the person of God Himself, right, coming to work His goodwill in our lives, which brought us to week three, where we talked about baptism with the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible mean by that? Which means, we said, it means a lot of things, but salvation not only begins with this work of the Holy Spirit, but then, you know, where He overcomes our, 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 our sinful will, our, our rebellious will against God, He overcomes that, and He opens our blind eyes to see Jesus for who He is and a willingness to come to Him. But not only that, but baptism of the Holy Spirit also means that when we turn to Him in repentance and in faith, then the Holy Spirit remains with us, remains in us, as all the different metaphors that the Bible uses. He's now the first fruits and the guarantee of our eternal life. And He seals us so that we belong as being a child of God until we see Jesus face to face. That brought us to week four last week. when We talked about what it then means to, and what it looks like to follow Jesus um, after the Lord through the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in us to bring us uh, to faith. What happens after that? Because that's day one. What do we do on day two and every day after that? And the Bible says, as we saw last week, that we're to walk and to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Bible commands that we as believers and followers of Christ be filled with the Spirit. And we, we talked about how that works. How do we obey that command? We walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit by steeping ourselves, immersing ourselves in His Word. The, the Bible was, we, we pray all the time, and I'll pray in a minute, that, acknowledging that this is His inspired, inerrant Word. Inspired of whom? Inspired of the Holy Spirit of God. This is His words. So we steep ourselves in His words, carrying that around in our heart and our mind. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We, we carry these words around in our mind so that it's His voice speaking to us with the Scriptures that we read, it, read and meditate on. And when we come to make a decision, when we fight against the temptation, we desire to walk in obedience, pleasing to the Lord. It's His voice speaking to us. And it's His power enabling us to, and making us more like Christ in the process. Making us more like Christ in our loves, in our hates, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, which brings us to tonight, week five. And we finally come to Paul's words in Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23, where he introduces to us the concept of the fruit of the Spirit, our study of which will take us the remainder of the semester. But I hope that the, ground, the background we've given has set you up to rightly understand the list of characteristics given to us here. It is not a list of things to strive for, to earn anything, or to earn any kind of favor from God. Yes, we aim to please Him, but this is, this is fruit that the Spirit produces in us as we walk in His fullness because we already are children of God. Because we already have His favor, entirely because of Jesus, in whom alone we have put our hope and trust. Here's an old name that you should know. He's an old Baptist theologian, Benjamin Keach. Here's what he said. 
long time ago. You must first have union with Christ before you can bring forth fruit to God. You must act from life, not for life. So what does this fruit of the Spirit, this fruit for God, this fruit of the Spirit look like? The, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, we're to manifest in our lives from the life that we've been given in Christ and not for any life that we're trying to earn by foolishly by trying to live up to these standards in our own flesh. It looks like what Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So if you have your Bible open to that, let's read it together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And as we look at this scripture and every other scripture we consider, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truth? Would you give us minds to understand it? Would you give us wills to, well, first, would you give us hearts to embrace that truth and love it and care? Would you give us wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do? Give us all ears to hear. Give me help that I need to teach and to teach clearly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, one more preliminary thing I need to point out uh, before we dig into tonight's theme. I want you to notice that in this passage... Fruit is singular. It's a singular fruit. Comprising all of these different aspects and characteristics. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit. Meaning that when we are walking in the Spirit, the Spirit will be producing all of these various characteristics in us. In our lives. It won't be part and partial. As if we could be patient and kind but completely lacking in love and faithfulness and self-control. That is not from the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Why are these not isolated and individual things that the Holy Spirit produces in us? Why are they a complete package? Because they all, all of them together, describe the life of Jesus. He's one dude. And remember what we said last week, that the Holy Spirit's role, His whole main role is to glorify Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit's role is to, in your life, is to reproduce in you the, the life and the character of Jesus Christ. That's His role in your life, to produce Jesus in you. And it looks like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That being said, we're going to think through each aspect of this singular fruit. We are going to think about them individually, because, not because the Spirit's going to produce uh, it, any of these in our lives apart from the others, but because each aspect does mean something. Uh, that is distinct from the other things. So even if the Holy Spirit, even if the Holy Spirit won't produce love in me apart from joy, um, I still need to know what love and joy each mean for it to distinctly, to, to know what the whole picture is going to look like in the end. Okay, I'll take it back. There's one more preliminary note. If it is true that the Holy Spirit's role 
is to glorify Christ in us. Then when we think about each aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, the proper picture of what that aspect looks like is to look at Jesus. It's to look at Him, right? Um, The Holy Spirit will never produce love in me that looks nothing like the love that Jesus Christ had. That's what I mean. So as we dive into the fruit of the Spirit, both tonight and in the rest of the semester, as we dive into tonight, beginning tonight with love, our plan of action in, in the coming week, starting tonight, is to take our cue from Jesus Christ. To take our cue from the, His life and, or what something else that the New Testament says about Him. Um, rather than whatever might be the conception of that characteristic in our, in our culture or dominant currently. Again, the Apostle John said in 1 John 2.17, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And the will of God is found in Jesus Christ. So tonight, as we think about the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul identifies as love, we want to make sure we consider it not just generally, but specifically exemplified for us in Christ, which is what the fruit of the Spirit will, what the Spirit will reproduce in us, often distinct from the world. Now, let's just be honest. There's no way, there's just no way that I or anybody else could say all that there is to say about Christ-like love in one sitting, let alone in just a few minutes. That doesn't mean we can't say anything. And so as I considered what the Scriptures tell us about the fruit of Christ-like love, and when I talk about love tonight, I mean Christ-like love. If I ever just say love, think Christ, okay? As I think about what the Scriptures tell us about that and that the Holy Spirit produces in us, I want to draw your attention quickly, don't let the numbers scare you, to five characteristics. Five. Seriously, don't let it scare you. I don't know if there's, they're in any significant order uh, that I'm going to present them, so we're just going to walk through them. We're not going to linger super long on any of them so that we won't be here till tomorrow. And here's the first one. The first characteristic that we'll consider of Christ-like, spirit-produced love is love is both to God and neighbor. Love is both to God and neighbor. When we talk about love and our culture, it's more about a feeling that we have. And not only that, it's almost always entirely human-centered. And when that is the case, it will inevitably go awry and cause problems. When love is only and always seen as horizontally between people, with no consideration whatsoever of a vertical dimension with the Lord God, then all kinds of redefinitions take place of what love even is and what what is right and good and appropriate. Hence, just one example, and I don't always mean like romantic love, but a few years ago, the very definition of marriage that had, had existed for all of human history Everywhere in the world, as long as there had been people, marriage was what it was. Completely redefined, and it was changed. Why? Because who are we to say? Who are we to say when anyone is allowed to love 
and thus marry. And the answer to that question, if put that way, who, who am I to say? Well, if, if taken on those terms, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I, if love is merely human, then I, what I or anybody else says about it, if that's all that it is, what I say is just, a, it's an opinion. It's a preference. It's no, my, my, and what I say, I guess, is no more right or wrong than anybody else's. That's not the whole story, though. Christ-like love is to both God and neighbor. What does that mean? When Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, for example, which was the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? Well, if you want to turn over to Matthew 22, you can. When you get there, look with me at verses 36 through 40. We need to think carefully about what Jesus says here. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And right there, Jesus teaches us a lot of things, but at least two things about love, meaning Christ-like love. First, it is more than a feeling. Because if, if, if he says, love your neighbors as yourselves, if we're to love others as we love ourselves, then it will necessarily involve actions. Because we do things for ourselves because we love ourselves. Might I add briefly on this point, though, that if you have a hard time feeling, this is a practical point, if you have a hard time feeling love for a particular person, just anybody, um, if, you will, if you will begin simply to do things, loving things for that person, doing things for them, then very often, even before you feel like it, the feeling will often slowly come behind the doing, right? Back to the passage. The second truth that Jesus reveals to us about love in this passage is that we don't define it. We don't define what love is. My opinion is no better than anybody else's, but I'm not the definer of what it is. Love of God is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus said it repeatedly. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. In his earthly life, Jesus loved the Father with perfect love. And it's out of that love that he said things like John 8, 29. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. My Father. Or he said things like John 17, 4, to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Christ-like love begins with love of God, which God defines. And with that love, we love our neighbor. 
which is more than a feeling, moves us to action. This is precisely why the Scripture in so many places warns us against misdirected love. Do not love the world or the things in it. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Christ-like love begins with the love of God. The love of God in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. God, love of God, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Our love of God above all things will define what love we are to have for our neighbor. That, despite being countercultural, will be good and satisfying and genuinely loving of others. So much of what we describe as love in our culture is at root often love of self. We love those who look like us. We love those who think like us. We love what makes us feel good about ourselves. We love those we desire to love. But nothing could be further from Christ-like love. How so? Because the second characteristic of Christ-like love is this. It is costly. It's costly. Let's just keep turning. Take a right and go to John 13. Again, for many of you, this will be a very familiar passage that perhaps you've read and heard many times. But I hope you'll see it with fresh eyes. In John 13... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples and through them to us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. A new commandment I give you. Really? That's a new one. It's all over the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 5, Leviticus 19, 18. We already saw Jesus say that the whole Old Testament is summed up in love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says in Romans 13, 8, that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's all over the place. How is this a new commandment? And in another place, 1 John 2, 7 and 8, John says that's a really old commandment. What's new about this new commandment? A couple of things. One, here, it is more, as it's worded here in John 13, 34, it is more than just a commandment. It is coming with that commandment, a physical demonstration from Jesus of what it looks like. Now we can see God literally showing us what this love looks like. What did it look like? Jesus was about to lay his life down for the life of his people. And he'll say in John 15, 13, there's no greater love than this. Perfect love considers others more important than ourselves. That is having the mindset in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus, according to Philippians 2, 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for her. It's costly. The first way that John 13, 34 is new is because Jesus has literally shown us what it looks like, and it's costly. But second, now Jesus is repeating this old commandment in a new commandment 
where now we also have the help of the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. To be reminded of the obvious, what are we talking about this tonight as being a part of? The fruit of the Spirit in us. We can now love because He first loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So love each other like this. Everyone will know you're my disciples if you love each other this sacrificially. Too, too, too often, this is precisely not what characterizes the church in the eyes of the world. We can't fix what church everywhere else is doing, but we can start with ourselves. Make sure that we love each other in this, this kind of way that is a physical demonstration of the world to the world of the sacrificial love of Jesus. That, that, that. Loving people sometimes is hard. It's, it, 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 to love people well, as Christ would have us to love people, as the Holy Spirit is moving in us to do, it is often uh, inconveniencing ourselves at best for, for someone else. It's, it's, it's sacrificing our desires. Sacrificing our plans. You'll have a better understanding of this, by the way, when you have children. Sacrificing our desires. Sacrificing our plans. Sometimes, if you're a faithful friend, sacrificing your own reputation for the good of somebody else. Now, if we love like this, Jesus says it will be noticeable. He says in verse 35, the world will notice and will know we're his disciples because of that kind of costly love. That, somebody who loves like that is, is demonstrating that they're devoted to another kingdom other than the kingdom of themselves. Third characteristic of Christ-like love, similar to this one. Christ-like love is often counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive this love that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us. Christ-like love is often hard, but not just because it's costly, but because it often demands that we do things that at first glance are counterintuitive. Let me just give you two examples. You don't have to turn to the first one. I'll, you can turn to the second example. In Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, Jesus tells us to do what? Does anybody know? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And also in that passage, in, in an indictment of the love that we often practice, he says, for if you love those who love you, that's, we're good at that. He says, if you do that, what reward do you have? But if we're going to display in our lives the perfect love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is to love even those who are our enemies and love them in a way that we just described, costly. That is counterintuitive for sure, if we will give even a moment's thought about that. Don't think that Jesus is ignorant of whom you might consider to be your enemy when he says, love your enemies. Don't think that he is ignorant of what someone may have done to you or said about you, perhaps repeatedly, when he said, love them. He knows what that's like. He loved his enemies to the point of death. 
even death on a cross for their eternal good. It's counterintuitive because that it, it, it grates against them. Like, that doesn't seem like that's what that person deserves. But then at that moment, we're inconsistent. Because we fail to, refute, to remember that we were the enemies of God when He loved us like that. And just think for a second about your life. Think about the things that have run through your mind, come out of your mouth, done by your hands. Mine. And then on the love that you receive from Him. If, if the fruit of the Spirit in us is love, that's what it looks like. It's counterintuitive. That's the first example. Loving your enemy. Second quick example, if you're already in John, flip over to chapter 11. This is another way in which Christ-like love is often counterintuitive. Sometimes it's not just loving our enemies in counterintuitive ways. Sometimes it's loving our friends in counterintuitive ways. In John 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick. And somebody came and told Jesus that he was sick and perhaps go to him so that you can heal him and he won't die. But if you're turned over to John 11, notice what we read in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... Out of, here's what he's about to do, out of his love for them. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You would think, if, if there's a comma after the word ill, if so, he loved them, so when he heard Lazarus was ill, the intuitive predicate to that sentence is he ran as fast as he could to help his friend Lazarus. The counterintuitive predicate of that sentence is he didn't move a finger. He didn't lift a foot right away. He let Lazarus die. But Jesus knew that it would be through that that the better outcome would come. He would raise Lazarus from the dead. And he would be able to proclaim, I am the resurrection and the life. For all who would trust in him. And you can see in verse 36, after he raised him from the dead, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, none of us can do that. think you can come see me but it does teach us it does at least teach us that sometimes the christ-like loving thing to do even with our friends is to make hard decisions that are hard in the short term for a greater good in the long term i do this with my kids all the time Like, I know that if they do that, they're going to get hurt. And I might have, at one point, told them, don't do that, you'll get hurt. I get tired of telling them. So I just let them do it. 
and they get hurt. And I don't go, see, I, I, sometimes I say, see, I told you, but it, they'll learn. And we never really grow out of that, having to learn the hard way. We're just big kids. Some, you know, Christ-like love loves God first so that we love our neighbors in the best way for them, in the most honoring to God above all. And our Christ-like love of neighbor is often costly, it's counterintuitive, and fourthly, quickly, Christ-like love is persevering. It's persevering. If you're opened up to John 11, again, take a right, just a page or two to back to chapter 13. And I, quickly, I want you to notice this powerful description of Christ-like love in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. By the way, what's the, what, what's the route he took to depart out of this world to the Father? A cross and a grave. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His disciples, he loved them to the end. Them who? His disciples. His disciples who were fickle in their faith whenever it was that they were not outright unfaithful to him like Peter was three times in a night. They were often self-centered. They were proud. Jesus loved them to this point and at the, at the moment when loving them was at its hardest, so hard that he would sweat drops of blood because of the intensity of the difficulty, asking the Lord if there's some other way, he didn't quit. He didn't quit. He loved them to the end. How often are we quick to put a limit on the number of chances we give people? Jesus' love is faithful. It never ends. He never gives up on His people. And His love in us by the Spirit will be the same. Love that gives up on people is not from the Holy Spirit. And that in itself is often costly and counterintuitive. And the reason why this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is listed first, love is the first one, is because it is the most significant aspect of all. And that is because of what? The last truth. Love, Christ-like love, is eternal. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. You know that 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to close with this, 1 Corinthians 13 has a long description of Christ-like love. You hear it in weddings a lot. Paul had, did not have a wedding in mind when he wrote this. It's good in a wedding. It's good on a Tuesday, too. We could have taken our cue from this passage alone, but I wanted to see the, act, I wanted to see the act, attributes in Christ himself in the Gospels. But even with what we've already said from the life of Christ, you can, you can see a lot of what we've already said in, in the description, for example, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind, and it does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at the wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But then look at the last verse of the chapter. He makes this final famous statement, and he says, Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
You ever thought about why? Why is the greatest of those three love? Because one day, two of those three will be no more. Faith will one day be sight, and hope will one day be reality. Love will never end. Why will love never end? Here's the reason love will never end. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We will love God and love each other with perfect love for all eternity. Why? Because we will all be like Christ in that day. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Christ-like love. Love that loves God above all and loves our neighbor that with, with love that is costly, counterintuitive, persevering, ultimately eternal. It's the love that He's given to us. And I'll end with this exhortation from 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. For God is love. As the band comes to close us in a song, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Lord, forgive us for our self-centered love. Um, Forgive us for uh, not loving our enemies. Um, forgive us for loving ourselves above all things. Forgive us often, as Paul said, loving pleasure rather than loving you. Help us to, by the Holy Spirit, to love as, as Jesus loved. And we know that that's going to happen best, not as we just try really hard. It will happen by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit when we look at Jesus for a long time. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, Lord, help us to just meditate for a long time on Jesus and His love for us so that when we are put in any particular situation, that is the love that just comes out of us to other people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.